Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI, Oxford's Institute for Research on the United States and its place in the world. I'm Adam Smith. In this episode, I'm going to explore where that phrase, the last best hope, which we always use with a question mark at the end, where that phrase comes from. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. That's what President Lincoln once wrote. Honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. President Obama, in a speech in 2015 commemorating the 150th anniversary of the passing of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which finally and forever abolished slavery. Obama was quoting the final paragraph of Abraham Lincoln's message to Congress in December 1862. It was a critical moment in the Civil War. The South was militarily still very strong. The Emancipation Proclamation, declaring free the enslaved people in rebel-held areas, had not yet but was about to go into effect, although tens of thousands of black people had already escaped slavery and were refugees behind Union lines. If, in the end, the Union was saved and the Confederacy destroyed, slavery might, might be destroyed with it. Fellow citizens, Lincoln wrote... We cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honour or dishonour to the latest generation. In giving, giving freedom, freedom to, the slave, to the slave, we assure, we assure freedom to the free. Honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. The last best hope. Well, there's a question mark in the title of this podcast. Is the United States now or has it ever been the last best hope of Earth? Abraham Lincoln thought it was even if his country had often been unworthy of the hope invested in it. It is a phrase which describes a core component in the mythology of what many 19th century Europeans as well as Americans thought of as the Great Republic of North America, the Great Republic of the West, that the United States has, or at least had, a universal, perhaps providential mission, that what happens in America matters not just for Americans, but for what Lincoln on a different occasion called the whole family of man. So how and why did Lincoln come to view America in that way? Well, joining me now to discuss that question is Professor Rachel Sheldon, the director of the George and Anne Richards Civil War Era Centre at Pennsylvania State University. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Adam. So let's just start by thinking about where Lincoln 
came from. Tell us a little bit about his upbringing, his family background, and how that might have helped to shape his view of America. So Lincoln was born in Kentucky. Uh, at a pretty young age, he moved to Indiana and later on to Illinois. So he grew up in sort of the western part of the United States at this point, what some people call the frontier. Uh, this gave him a particularly um, sort of outside the main uh, commercial areas of the of the country vision of what the country is. Um, so he was in in areas where he would have been touched more by Native American tribes that are in the region. Um, and he would have been in an area where the population density was um, smaller. But this kind of uh, frontier style experience really gave him a sense that um, there was a mission of the United States to move westward and to um, live in this territory that was uh, sort of destined for the American people. So he was as it were, on the edge of white European settlement of the North American continent. And he was born in 1809. So that's just a, a short generation away from the revolution. How would that have affected his sense of the country that he was growing up in? Yeah, so um, the founders, by the time that Lincoln is a kid, really have become um, the most popular conversation starter. Uh, he, as a very small child or a small young man, read um, Parson Weems' Life of Washington, uh, which was a, a very popular book about Washington's life that um, is full of apocryphal stories, including the cherry tree story, I Cannot Tell a Lie. Uh, yes. Lincoln was very taken with this. Um, he also read A History of the United States that was published in 1820, uh, which is really some short amount of history, but was really about how wonderful the founders were and how important they were in creating this new nation. Uh, he wasn't very well educated. And so this sort of served as his baseline for uh, understanding the country around him and thinking about what it, what it meant. <laughs> so the revolution created the United States as an independent country. But of course, there was also this idea that I think is was must have been pretty important to Lincoln and other people growing up around him, that this wasn't just, as it were, just another country. This was a really special place, that the founders were not didn't just happen to be the people who'd made America. They'd made a country which, in the in the words of the Declaration of Independence, was dedicated to particular ideals of equality. So how how did was that involved in Parson Weems' biography of Washington yeah. and the history of the United States that you're talking <laughs> about? Was that all in there? Yeah. So I think um, the found the three founders that he thinks most um, strongly about are uh, Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. Often the ones we call up um, Jefferson for the Declaration of Independence, just as you suggest. Uh, the Declaration of Independence was probably the most important document to Lincoln at this point, even more than the Constitution um, as, a, as a child and then throughout his life, really. Um, and then Madison as the father of the Constitution and Washington as the father of the country. And the idea is all of these um, great ideals that these men put forward in these documents and in leading the country was really about um, the liberty of the human being. Uh, and this was the first time in all of world history, from what Lincoln understood, that this experiment in liberty 
was really put forward and that it would be an example for the rest of the world, that it would be something that other countries would want to emulate. Uh, and in the founding generation, it was really an experiment. And it was up to Lincoln's generation to keep that experiment going uh, and to move it forward. Lincoln believed that it was an unfinished experiment, as of yet unfinished experiment, uh, and needed to continue developing and becoming what it could be. Uh, and that's part of his vision for the future and, and why he becomes so involved in politics and law uh, in thinking about how the United States could be what it was meant to be by the founders. He he conceived then of his generation's responsibility as one of preservation, but also of, of unfolding a, a project that had already been set in motion by the founding generation. So not to do anything new, but to simply hold to the course and pursue that direction of That's travel. Right. That's right. So his vision is to, and, and particularly through politics, to try to put forward um, the goals of the founders that they were not able to um, implement in their generation. They were really concerned with the experiment itself, whether they could keep the nation going, um, whether such an experiment could work in the first place. And it was Lincoln's generation then to, to it was up to them to move things forward, to try to make um, the nation be what it could be. Sure, it will be in people's minds listening to this that, okay, Lincoln's growing up in the 1820s and 30s. He loves Jefferson. And he loves these resounding phrases about all men being created equal. Um, but at the time when Lincoln's growing up, uh, the enslavement of African-Americans is not just a existing fact about the United States. It's expanding rapidly, is becoming an ever more important part of the American economy. And it's possibly many people think is driving um, economic growth more than any other factor. Um, what is a big subject, Rachel, but what? <laughs> How did Lincoln reconcile those two things at that early stage in his career, the promise of equality and the reality of enslavement? Yeah, I think Lincoln was naturally anti-slavery. He he opposed slavery, uh, at least in the abstract. I don't think he had a lot of concrete ideas about what that meant going forward. He would later develop them when he became president. Um, but he he's he's similar to others of his generation who see um, slavery as a as a problem um, that needs to be fixed in some way and believing that the founders also saw slavery as a problem. So he refers mm -hmm. often to Jefferson's visions uh, of an anti-slavery society and thinks a lot about colonization, um, the idea of removing uh, the African-American population to other areas of the world um, so as to produce more of a white nation uh, without Which is slavery. a way of sort of wishing away the problem in a yes. way, in effect. For <laughs> a white man growing up in 19th century America to support colonization to Liberia or to somewhere in the Caribbean or Central America or wherever is just simply to say, I wish this didn't exist, isn't it? It's not, it's not really, I mean, it, there were projects to do that, but the notion that you could really remove a whole population was a kind of fantasy projection. But it, it, it's speaking to a desire to live in a nation in which there isn't the, the it's a recognition that slavery is a problem. And so it's speaking to a desire to live in a nation in which it isn't a problem. Yeah. And and I think it's it's very similar to other people of his generation who just didn't want to deal with it. It wasn't something that they wanted to face. They didn't want to have to think about a biracial society. Uh, they 
Lincoln himself did not believe in rights for African-Americans. He was certainly someone who was not thinking about that as the primary problem of American society. Liberty to him was about liberty for white men. Uh, And that was very common. The colonization society among whites is much more popular than almost any other kind of anti-slavery activism. Uh, So Lincoln is right in line with the rest of his generation. Mm. And and this continues throughout his life. He's still promoting colonization all the way up uh, pretty much through the war uh, and is really concerned about the idea of a biracial society, uncomfortable with it, uh, almost until the end of his life. So in the middle of the 19th century, then, I mean, to to oversimplify a complicated situation, you've got at least two big ways of viewing the American Revolution. Let's say, on the one hand, you've got Lincoln's way, which is to say that the legacy of the American Revolution is the promise of equality. And that means that the country definitely should not, in the long run at least, tolerate enslavement of human beings. Whether or not that means it's a biracial democracy is a is a different question, but it definitely shouldn't tolerate slavery. On the other hand, you've got a vision of the meaning of the revolution as espoused by white Southerners who lead the Confederacy after 1861, who think that the revolution and that language of equality in Jefferson's Declaration of Independence ex- only applied to white people. And therefore, what they're doing in 1861 is fulfilling the promise of the Declaration of Independence by creating a country which formalizes and celebrates and acknowledges the subjection of African Americans in in the name of almost to enable white liberty. I would almost say that they have similar goals. I mean, the idea is um, liberty for whites. And Part of Lincoln's discomfort with slavery is about uh, how it affects liberty for whites. And that's part of the reason why he's so interested in colonization is that um, he wants a he wants a a white nation. That is that's part of his idea um, all the way up almost through the entire Civil War. Um, He has his mind changed about black rights by the by the end. But I think it's it's two different visions of a white society mm. um, that they are that they are each um, trying to promote it, one with slavery and one without. Yeah, that's a really, really good formulation. And that the problem of slavery for Lincoln and people who thought like Lincoln then was not just or even necessarily primarily because of the experience of enslavement for black people, but because of the way in which trying to maintain a slave society infringed the freedoms of white people. So as you say, two different visions of freedom, in one of which slavery was necessary, the Confederate vision, slavery was essentially in order to preserve white liberty. In Lincoln's view, slavery was an obstacle to maintaining white liberty. I think this was was pretty... um pretty well understood by abolitionists as well, including Frederick Douglass in his in his famous um, speech, Fourth of July address um, that he delivers on July 5th. So that, that's the one about, where he says, what to the slave is the Fourth of July? What to the slave is the Fourth of July? Uh, he says uh, that that slavery corrupts the white experience. He talks about it in, in a variety of different ways. He talks about um, it, it 
corrupts their religion, it corrupts their politics, it corrupts um, their morals. And and so he's very aware of it. I think this is, um, it's a standard line among abolitionists and, and many in Lincoln's orbit who are promoting the ideas of anti-slavery. The question is just when will slavery disappear? And, and Lincoln is not so interested in solutions to that initially. Finally, when he joins the Republican Party, um, after being a Whig for most of his life, once the Whig Party dies out, I think he becomes more committed to the idea of doing something uh, specific by limiting territorial expansion. But even then, that is a, a long-term idea. It is not a it is not an immediate solution. He believes the Constitution bars him from doing anything uh, to deal with slavery in the in the states in which it already exists. Uh, and this again is about his relationship to the founders, how he thinks about this as a compromise that was made in the Constitution that needs to be moved forward um, and adjusted as future generations deal with it. Rachel, let's zoom in on the immediate context in which Lincoln wrote these words. He called America the last best hope of Earth. Can you talk us through the context? We're in December 1862. Yeah, this is a really important moment in the in the uh, midst of the Civil War. So um, the Union Army had not actually been um, faring very well in, in recent months. The summer and the Peninsula campaign had been quite a disaster for the Union Army in the Eastern Theater. Uh, and they had sort of a half victory at Antietam on September 17th, eighteen. 62, um, which was the single bloodiest day of the Civil War, 23,000 dead or injured. Um, and so there's there's a lot of concern about whether the Union will actually win the war. Politically, things are very uncomfortable. Uh, the midterm elections of 1862 turn out very badly for the Republicans. Uh, they lose, a, I think, 27 seats in the House of Representatives and then, of course, in September, after um, the half, sort of half victory at Antietam, Lincoln issues the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which he had been formulating over the summer, uh, which gave uh, this sort of deadline of January 1st, 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation would actually be in force uh, and, and actually introduces the idea that uh, enslaved people in the Confederate States will become free uh, and will have the opportunity to participate in the union, to to work for the union, to fight for the union, although that is still uh, up in the air some at this point. So this is sort of the political context. And then Lincoln is giving this message to Congress in December 1862. Uh, he's he's delivering it as a as sheets of paper, not actually uh, as an address like our current State of the Union. Uh, this is a message to Congress that sort of summarizes his many views of how things are going. There, it's a very long message. There's a lot about foreign relationships and commerce. Uh, but a big thing that he's doing in this message is trying to prepare uh, Congress and the states more generally for emancipation and thinking about solutions for making emancipation easier uh, and for making it more possible uh, for white Southerners to, to get on board. 
One other piece of context that I think is important is that Congress had just passed um, several important pieces of legislation that maybe we don't think about necessarily as related to slavery and to a white nation, but I think are important. The Homestead Act, which allowed whites to um, purchase land up, uh, on the other side of the Mississippi River. Um, the Morrill Land Grant Act, which uh, gave land for education. Um, and took that land from Native Americans, just as the Homestead Act did, and the Pacific Railroad Act, which uh, creates a transcontinental railroad uh, from one side of the United States to the other. And all of this is dispossessing Native peoples uh, so that there can be a, a white nation and, and have more opportunity for white men. And so thinking about justifying this uh, emancipation in whatever form is really about that continued vision of liberty for white men, of economic opportunity for white men. Which is why in the final paragraph to this message to Congress, he says, he writes, in giving freedom to the slave, referring to the forthcoming Emancipation Proclamation, we assure freedom to the free. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. That's the sentence which precedes the line, we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. So that's your point, isn't it, really, that the two things are coupled. Emancipation is a means of assuring freedom to the already free, to white Americans. That's right. I, I think it, sometimes it's hard to understand um, because it sounds so silly to be able to say, um, white Americans were concerned about their own freedoms and they talked about themselves as being enslaved to ideological visions of um, slaveholders. This is the main concern about uh, white Southerners is that they are a slave power uh, that are that is controlling the United States. And so there's a concern about white freedom, about white ability to pursue um, their political and ideological goals and to, and to pursue freedom. And so those things have always been intertwined uh, and they continue to be in, in the civil war and, and throughout Lincoln's rhetoric. I think um, what's amazing to me about this speech is that the last two paragraphs, which this is, uh, excuse me, it's not a speech, it's a message. Um, the last two paragraphs, which he does not say out loud are just, full of these little choice uh, quote. I mean, Lincoln has so many of them, but uh, you know, the, the second to last paragraph is, includes the title of your most recent book. Uh, the, the last paragraph, I mean, last best hope. Um, uh, again, this freedom for the free, the fiery trial. Uh, we cannot, we cannot escape, escape history. history. Yes. All of these, <laughs> all of these important uh, phrases. And they're really, uh, they're in this message, I think, in part because none of them are controversial. They all appeal um, to the American ideal of freedom for white men and, and what that means for the world. The idea that a, a nation, a, a, a democracy can exist, a place where people can be in control of their own political and ideological future. And so the last best hope for Lincoln is really the least controversial thing he says in this message uh, and the least contro controversial thing he says maybe at all in, <laughs> in the war. But it's so helpful, though, because it explains something that I think a lot of people in this study of the Civil War perhaps 
especially people outside of the United States, think is is why did why did Northerners want to go to war over secession? I mean, if Quebec had voted to secede, Canada wouldn't have gone to war to keep itself together. If and when Scotland votes for independence, I'm I'm certainly not going to go out to volunteer to fight against um, Scottish independence fighters, and I don't think many other people will. Uh, there were plenty of other examples in history of of secessions that haven't provoked war, although many others that have. So what was this passion? I mean, if there's one thing that Lincoln was really passionate about, whatever whether or not he was passionate about ending slavery, he was definitely passionate about maintaining the Union. Yeah. And everything you've been saying kind of explains why that was. He genuinely believed, and what you're saying is that so did everybody else in the in the North at the same time, that if the Union broke up, if the confederacy was allowed to succeed then that would be the end for free government everywhere in the whole world forever i mean that's an amazing (laughs) thing to believe but it is profoundly what they thought isn't it it is yeah and and lincoln was convinced that um that this would be the end everywhere just as you say uh that this wouldn't just be the failure in the united states that this would be uh forever what would happen to democracy uh and he was he was very focused on this and he he explains it in almost every speech and message that he gives uh in this 1862 message he talks for a while about what will happen uh if if secession is allowed to happen here, it will happen all over, and it will uh, it will happen in other parts of the of the country of the remaining country, and it will never stop. Uh, and that and the the idea that uh, the majority can rule, the idea that the people can rule, will no longer uh, be possible. That anytime anyone wanted to leave the union, that that would happen because there was no way to enforce it. And so his belief was that this was going to be the end everywhere. Um, I want to move on finally to, to talking about the legacy of, of all of this. How do you think Lincoln's view of America as the last best hope of earth, as this universal nation offering this universal promise of equality and free government, how has that vision influenced our memory of the Civil War? How has it survived? How has it fared in the last century and a half? I think um, it's most often used uh, to justify American behavior all over the world, which is very, uh, in an uncomfortable way, uh, to think about Lincoln's legacy. Certainly, uh, Lincoln is quoted all the time uh, to justify all kinds of behavior on behalf of the United States. Uh, I think often uh, his words are out of context uh, on that on that level. I also think it's created a, a generation of people who are uncomfortable with Lincoln, uh, who are uncomfortable with the idea of the last best hope, um, certainly in our current political moment. And uh, with the leadership that we have now, there's a sense that we are in no way the last best hope. Uh, and Lincoln's really... Um, sort of ambivalent behavior towards African-Americans has also been um, sort of the subject of of why Lincoln is, is, mm, we're more skeptical of Lincoln if we are skeptical of the way that the United States is behaving. And um, I think rightly in many ways, but I think we can use Lincoln better. Uh, People who are in favor of um, understanding 
uh, the possibilities of freedom, the possibilities of equality, uh, could use Lincoln's view uh, that we are constantly trying to fulfill the ideals of the founders could be useful to us, good and but bad. You seem to be suggesting, I think this is so interesting, that even though Lincoln used this phrase, the last best hope of earth, he wasn't doing it in a triumphalist way. He always retained a sense of personal humility, but also a sense of humility in relation to the political project that he was part of. So what you're saying is that his words have been used in a triumphalist way to say, USA, USA, we're the last best hope. That wasn't at all the sense in which Lincoln meant them. Yeah, he meant it. He meant it more in the possibility of the United States, what the U.S. could be, um, if future generations were able to keep it, were able to um, move forward to to fulfill the vision of the founders, even if it wasn't really what the vision of the founders was. It's um, it's the possibility in the words, the possibility in the words of the Declaration of Independence, the possibility in the Constitution, um, the possibility of what the United States could be. And, and he had a lot of humility in the, in the 1862 message to Congress that he, um, that he delivers this, these words in of the last best hope. He's, he's got enormous humility. He's speaking to people who are his senior, uh, in politics. He said so in the address. And I know many of you have more experience than I do. Uh, and, and I offer these as suggestions. He, he had a lot of humility, and I think we could we could learn from that. I think um, you know the Civil War is a is a is a tricky subject to be interested in because for so long it's been used as a way to talk about the triumph of the Union and the triumph of uh, America more generally, and and so the the problem of slavery, the problem of African American rights, uh, is often put to the side. Uh, is is not the center of the story. So to summarize, the country needs a little bit of Lincoln right now. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps in this moment more than, than any other moment. Um, Rachel Sheldon, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. So... The last best hope, a resonant phrase used by Lincoln in 1862, and Lincoln had so many resonant phrases, that captured an idea so familiar to his audience that he barely had to spell it out, that the United States was a special place. But not special because of what it was, or for what it had been, but because of what it might one day be. Not every American president since Lincoln, to put it mildly, have understood that. But Obama did. To nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. That is our choice. Today, we affirm hope. Thank you. God bless you. May God bless the United States of America. And you've been listening to the Last Best Hope podcast from Oxford's RAI. I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.